0: Morning, Glory, America. It's you, Hewitt. I'm back. Surprise. Yes, I took this week off, but I'm not going to trust the Hillsdale Dialogue, even to as able a lawyer as Kurt Schlichter or to as wonderful a person as any of my other guests. So certainly not to Dwayne. I am back because the Hillsdale Dialogue has embarked on a new and a very important series. And I will remind you, if you missed last week, Dr. Arn and I were together a few weeks back in the Kirby Center in Washington, D.C., talking about the Hilldale Dialogue for 2021 in, in times of tumult, in times of great stress. And, and I said to him, you know, we, we have lost the argument about freedom with our young people. They're running around thinking AOC actually knows what she's talking about. He said, so you're ready to get serious. And I thought, well, I've been serious for eight years. But no, I mean really serious and argue freedom. So let's go back to the beginning. And, and so pursuant to Dr. Laurie Arn, who joins us, we are joined by Dr. David Rainey. Dr. Rainey is a professor of Hillsdale's History Department. He is the John Anthony Holter Chair in American History, the Constitution, and the Second Amendment, a product of the University of Chicago, cheerless, bleak, wintry. But nevertheless, he, he stayed in <laughs> Illinois, got his M.A. and Ph.D. from Urbana-Champaign. You you were, I mean, I, I took a, a shot there because John Podhortz listens to the show, and I always like to run over the University of Chicago. Do they even have a mascot there, Dr. Rainey? I mean, or is it just always... Rain. Is, is Rain and Cloudy the mascot in there?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, actually, they are, they are the Maroons. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, as in the, the color red, and I think that might actually probably define uh, much of the politics of the place now, certainly more so than when I was there. But uh, one, one interesting fact about uh, Chicago, the most popular uh, dating destination was actually the, uh, the Regenstein Library, um, which uh, uh, was the centerpiece of campus right across from my dorm. So uh, uh, it was, as some people say, it's a place where fun would go to die.
0: <laughs> you know, and they have now annexed in the Obama Museum and Library, and so uh, history will be certainly understood differently uh, by those who have, who, who pass through the Obama Library when President Obama completes it in a few years. It's on the affiliated with the University of Chicago. I don't know if Nathan Tarkov is still teaching. I had him as an undergraduate decades ago, Doctor Arn. But does the University of Chicago? Still carry on any of its Leo Strauss's traditions? Yeah, Tarkov and there's a few others.
2: They've got a fair political philosophy program. Of course, the great Leo Strauss was there, and that you know was its high point. And Joseph Cropsey, who died a few years ago, and was Strauss was one of Strauss's early students. Uh, he was a bulwark of the political philosophy teaching there for forty years. So
0: you are one of the remnant, Dr. Rainey, and I would like you to put into context, first of all, the Mayflower Compact. Last week, we talked about the laws of Virginia, and this week, we turned to the Mayflower Compact. I've always begun my con law classes by the reading of this. I never knew about the laws of Virginia, and even today in some AP courses in some high schools, they'll still teach it. Why does it figure so large in our memory, our collective memory?
1: Well, I think part of it, of course, is uh, cultural. Right, the uh, the image of the uh, uh, the pilgrims uh, stepping ashore at uh, Plymouth Rock. Uh, I think uh, we still have um, uh, certain uh, cultural reminiscences about that. But uh, in a more um, serious and academic uh, sense, uh, we see um, in the Mayflower Compact maybe a joining of of the old and the new. Uh, we see. First of all, in a way, kind of a throwback to the um, covenantal culture of the ancient Hebrews, uh, because we see uh, originally it was not called the Mayflower Compact. That that, um, uh, terminology came later, uh, particularly after the writings of of, um, primarily John Locke, um, uh, but also Thomas Hobbes the idea of social contracts and compacts, that sort of thing. So it was most likely called the Mayflower Combination or Mayflower Covenant. Um, but at any rate, uh, we see vestiges of, of Hebrew covenantal culture in that the settlers believe that they were first establishing a covenant between themselves and God on a vertical basis, but also a covenant between and among men. And that's something that I think deserves um, you know, close attention. So we have a, a sense of uh, consent, Right. Uh, Men basically covenant with one another to create the civil body politics, civil society ruled by a government. Uh, But also they're covenanting with with God, first and foremost, to throw back to the old Abrahamic covenant and and uh, the subsequent covenants in the Old Testament. So it's it's important uh, from both the standpoint of of ancient history, going back to ancient Hebrews, covenantal culture, but also questions of of, um, the consent of the governed.
0: No, I I don't remember who said it, but all the virtues are important, but courage uh, is the first virtue, because without them all the others do not work. The people who get on this boat in July of 1620 do not lack for courage, Dr. Arne, do they?
2: Well, they had already moved to Holland and uh, understand their spirit. First of all, these people are separatists, and that's, by the way, what doesn't work out when they get to america their idea was and they're you know it's a fearsome and terrible thing you know every year by the way in the wall street journal at thanksgiving they print two articles and they've been doing it for 50 years and the first is an extract from the diaries of people uh, one particular person on the mayflower and then the second is a Article written about a trip across America by Vermont Royster, who was the first of the great editorial page editors of the Journal, and you can compare those two things, right? And they're, you know, they're some of their friends and family from England came over to Holland to see them off, and they're wailing, right? And it's just terrible. They're going to get on this boat, and they know they're never going to see each other again. And then it's stormy, and the ship leaks. And it takes much longer than they think. And they're almost out of food and water. And they're in trouble. And then they land in the wrong place, too far north. And so, and they, you know, only half know that. And so, at, at that moment, you know, they've, and why did they go? Well, they believed. And see, this is something that had to get discarded. And and, and it wasn't just James Madison There's 150 years of history from these days uh, in the first settlements to the beginning of the American Revolution, which really started in 1763. Now, what did they learn? They came across the ocean and thought, we'll found our own place. It's some huge place up there. Nobody knows how big it is. And we'll found our own place, and we'll practice our religion just among ourselves And everybody who lives with us is going to practice the religion. And so they intend, they didn't, it wasn't, religious freedom was not the idea in their mind, except that everybody could have it because everybody could have his own community dotted all over this vast place. (laughs) Well, it took them a long time to find out that didn't work. Well, in a long time, by the end of the 150 years, freedom of religion was a commonplace idea in America. Because... You know, they, 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 they just found out that religious strife broke out, even in small communities. And so a better policy was let people worship as they please.
0: The, even and, the Rhode Islanders got up and left. Anne Hutchison got up and left. Uh, uh, Dr. Rainey, uh, 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 Rebecca Fraser says that Plymouth Colony was the first experiment in consensual government in Western history, between individuals with one another and not with a monarch. I'm not sure I agree with that because the expedition is known to the monarch. But do you agree with it that it's the first example of consensual government?
1: Well, I think, for all intents and purposes, we could probably say that I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't take issue with that. Uh, but I, I definitely, uh, I, I like the point that Dr. Arn made about the um, the element of, of uh, religious liberty, and it's it's a really ironic a point that I often make to my students. It's ironic that the separatists believe that, in a way, um, they were promoting religious liberty uh, as the Puritans saw it. Right? I mean, they basically believed that liberty meant you had the ability to do that, which was, you know just right and honest. And so to them, uh, their form of worship, basically looking at the model of the primitive church in the New Testament and emulating that, that was the proper way to worship God. That was the right way to worship God. Uh, And the Massachusetts Bay uh, Puritans uh, believed the same thing. And so that meant that each congregation was largely autonomous. Uh, they could pretty much do their own thing, uh, and uh, they were left to their own devices within reason. Uh, but in the end, of course, everyone, as Dr. Arndt suggests, everyone was expected to to worship in roughly speaking the same way. So there was no religious toleration in the sense we know of it today. And, and as you said, Mr. Hewitt, uh, yes, uh, Rhode Island was a direct um, spinoff from Massachusetts Bay. Uh, ultimately, uh, Roger Williams, uh, it, ironically enough, he wasn't a secularist. He wasn't, uh, uh, he wasn't an atheist. He was actually, uh, He was, you know, a very rigid separatist. Uh, and he believed that the Massachusetts Bay Church wasn't pure enough. And so he left and, and made it clear, though, that the state had no role in dictating uh, matters of conscience.
0: It's a very interesting that no sooner did they get together to be separate than they split. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the actual document itself, because it precedes landing. And I always like to stress to people, the Mayflower Compact is not... They don't know where they are when they agree to it. They they just sign on. And so what is it that the first voluntary association of people who have agreed to govern themselves come up with? We'll find out after the break. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. I'm Hugh Hewitt. We'll be right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Rainey is a professor of history at Hillsdale College. Dr. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. And we are talking about the Mayflower Compact in our series of where did we come from? Specifically, where did Americans come from and why is freedom in our DNA? Dr. Rainey, I like to emphasize these people were nuts. And by that, I mean uh, today when a group of uh, young entrepreneurs approach me for advice or they want to invest, you know, I always tell them about how hard it is to start a company. I tell them young people who are about to get married how hard it is to have a marriage. I tell everyone about how hard things are. Nothing actually is hard relative to what these crazy 102 people decided to do. <laughs>
1: that's, that's exactly right. They were taking a, a big leap into the unknown. Uh, now, of course, they were familiar with the, um, the Virginia uh, settlement. And in fact, it was actually the Virginia uh, company uh, that um, had uh, basically granted them permission to settle in the northern uh, realms of their colony. But as you indicated before, uh, they ended up getting blown off course. They were probably shooting for somewhere near the mouth of the Hudson River and ended up, of course, in Plymouth. And that meant that they were without um, really a form of government. Uh, They weren't going to be governed by the laws of Virginia because they're outside the boundaries of Virginia. So they had to uh, come up with some uh, form of of law that would govern their behavior. Uh, And and that's, of course, what we have with the Mayflower Compact, which uh, uh, they signed in November of 1620.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about from whose mind does it spring, like Athena, fully formed. Who who writes the thing down?
1: <laughs> right. Well, well, most of it, of course, I, I, would, I would say it was a joint effort. But uh, much of it, of course, was the uh, inspiration of uh, William Bradford. And I always recommend uh, his his excellent um, history of Plymouth Plantation, which uh, uh, is is um, spectacular. It was it was compiled over the course of about twenty years, um, and uh, the man was Governor of Plymouth thirty times uh, up until sixteen fifty six He died the next year, uh, but he was really the inspiration of much of this. He provided uh, the stability the colony desperately needed uh, so uh, so he was really kind of the driving force behind uh, all of this uh, but but there, it's also important to, to note I think that um, that this group on the Mayflower was not simply composed of uh, the the devout the faithful the um, so called um, visible saints, those who could you know, show that they were they were truly among you know God's elect and destined for salvation. Yes, they had 35 of those saints, but they also had 67. I tell my students not sinners, uh, but 67 strangers. Those who were not yet members of the elect, uh, but they were still important to the colony. Uh, these were people who were carpenters, uh, uh, cooper's, uh, people who actually were able to uh, to do things that the colony would need. So it was meant to be a joint effort, and of course the the, the uh, the leaders of the colony understood that those, especially those strangers, had to be kept in check. And so everybody needed to be governed uh, by a singular document. They've also got 30 sailors, which is a recipe for mayhem.
0: Uh, and so that, they've got uh, they, they turn around, and they go back, of course, but they got 30 sailors. Let me ask you in, in it's a brief segment again. What do you think of William Bradford? I, I have a very hazy image of the man.
1: Well, I, I, I have tremendous respect for the man. He was—he was, he was clearly—he uh, was pious. He was devoted to God. Uh, he was—he um, uh, he was a brilliant man, and uh, he was really what the colony needed at its um, at its uh, genesis. Uh, without Bradford, I'm not sure that this would have gone. The way that it did. In fact, I'm pretty convinced it would not have. And he was also instrumental um, after that initial, um, not to delve into economics, but after the initial uh, period in which the colony was basically run as a communal venture with people uh, working... Uh, pardon the expression, but uh, each according to his ability. Uh, He would then receive, uh, according to his need, uh, materials, food and such from the common store. Uh, Bradford realized that that was a recipe for disaster, that people were becoming indolent. They were, uh, as he put it, um, slumbering over their tasks, in his words. (laughs) And uh, so he he revamped that process and said, listen, I I want to uh, basically I want to provide the sorts of things that Dr. Arn mentioned earlier, uh, incentives for, for work. Uh, I want people to own their own land. I want people to be able to benefit from the fruits of their labor. And by transforming the, the colony from this communal venture into one based on, uh, on private enterprise, the ownership of private property, uh, it um, I, I would argue it saved the colony
0: you go under, go forward 350 years and mao tries that communal farming thing larry orn and, and and the same thing happens right they have the greatest starvation in history with the great leap forward cuz people want to keep what they grow it's 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 not it's not news to anybody is it
2: well um yeah they so I want, to, I want to step back one step and say something.
0: I think is fundamental. Oh, we're running well, out of time. We're, wait, come back and say something fundamental right after the break. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. The dog is here to make us all stay awake. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hilldale Dialogue is back. This week, we're talking about the Mayflower Compact and the second of a series on where did American freedom come by, from and why we ought to cherish it. Uh, I'm joined by Dr. David Rainey, Professor of History. In fact, he holds the John Anthony Halter Chair in American History, the Constitution, and the Second Amendment at Hillsdale College. Dr. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu, including the opportunity to subscribe for free to Imprimus, a wonderful journal that will arrive in your mailbox monthly. If you just subscribe, it's absolutely free. And all of their online wonderful courses. Dr. Arm, when we went to break, you said you wanted to go back to something fundamental. What was that?
2: Well, um, we have to understand this document as a microcosm of two things coming together. Uh, The first is the whole history of the West. Uh, The Hebrews, uh, Christ, Greek philosophy, which produces a certain outlook on human nature, the correct one, it tries to argue. But then the second is this new world, right? And so this document, the Mayflower Compact is, in my opinion, much more indicative of what's going to happen than those harsh laws that were adopted in Virginia uh, a decade earlier. Because uh, look what's here, right? Recognize the authority of the king who, however, immediately becomes irrelevant then uh, recognize God, and then make a pact with one another. And, you know, they do that. Uh, only the men sign this, and, and uh, Hannah Nicole Jones of the New York Times makes a lot of that, right? But the truth is, both the men and the women needed the family, and they voted by families. And, uh, and you know, the family is what's remarkable about this group of people, because they didn't come over here just to quest for gold. They came here to establish a life, and a life of their own making and choosing, and the idea that they, each individual, had a right to be a party to the compact, along with, as David Rainey points out, with God. This is a a completion, in my argument, a perfection of the whole history of the West, and and because it's this moment, uh, as you're about to say, as you were saying. It's this moment when their lives are at stake, and they've already lost people, and they're about to, in the winter, land on a hostile shore of which they know nothing, and they know they don't have any food. Then, at this moment, they stop and make a plan about their relations with each other. And that means that it's one of the purest and cleanest things. It actually partakes of the same spirit of the Declaration of Independence, which itself is an act of treason and which was made at the moment of an outbreak of a terrible war between a nation that didn't even have an army and the greatest military power on Earth, right? And so in situations like that, when people write down to, sit down to write a formal document and stick their names on it, which is a commitment unto death, then there's some truth being spoken there. And it's a very interesting thing to absorb.
0: There are 102 passengers... And of those 102, Dr. Rainey, 41, uh, the men of the voyage, the leaders of the family, signed this. Were there dissenters to the compact?
1: Uh, well, if there, if there were, uh, that was irrelevant, because basically all were required to sign. Uh, so um, I, I'm not aware of any uh, meaningful uh, dissent. Um, perhaps there was, but uh, it was, it was um, uh, eventually worked out, and all, uh, all of the uh, adult males, uh, so-called freemen, they all signed.
2: So they land... There are, here, there are millions of dissenters to the Hillsdale College Mission and Honor Code, they just don't happen to be part of our college. <laughs> <laughs> so they probably did, they went to Rhode Island, probably yeah, They're in Rhode Island right well, now. <laughs> what we what we say to them is what the pilgrims said. There's yeah. lots of places to go.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's lo- a good head on down to gosh, be banished to Rhode Island. That's a terrible fate. Um, so they, they signed this thing. And uh, let me turn to you, Dr. Rating. What is its essence? the Mayflower Compact, what is it that we should know about it?
1: Well, I think Dr. Arn already summarized, uh, summarized it quite well. And I, I wouldn't presume to, to add uh, much to that, but I would, I would just, um, say that this in some ways is a, um, it's, it's a bridge, uh, between, um, the ancient and the modern. We talked a bit about, uh, the, um, Hebrew idea of a covenantal culture, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant, um, But this is something that continues even down into, for example, uh, the Revolutionary War. Uh, If you you page through the American Heritage Reader, you'll find later during the American Revolution uh, that um, the Continental Congress, uh, not some private body, but the Continental Congress called for days of, uh, of, uh, yes, Thanksgiving, but also humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Why? Uh, Because they believed that their society still had a covenant with with the Almighty, with God. And uh, that meant basically um, obeying God in all particulars. And there was a sense that, especially early in that war, the American Revolution, uh, things were not going so well. Think of 1776. It was a glorious year in many respects, but not so much if you look at the battlefield uh, for the uh, American patriots. So there was a sense early in the war that things were falling apart, and it was because... The American people, they weren't pious enough. They, they weren't right with God. And so if you look at those documents, which, again, in the American Heritage Reader, you can see that the, the Congress is calling upon the people to humble themselves before God, to get right with God. Otherwise, uh, they made it very clear that the colonists um, uh, they would not they would not win they would not prevail. God did not reward uh, the largest army or the strongest navy; He rewarded those who were most faithful to Him, and whoever was most faithful to Him would actually ultimately win. And so, I, I think you, you can see some of the the early elements of that here uh, in the Mayflower Compact as well. That uh, we have to we have to. Get right with God first, and then other things will fall into place by uh, by virtue of God blessing us for for doing what's uh, His will. Now, I want to I want to dwell for a moment on the fact that it was written down,
0: uh, like the Declaration of Independence, like the Constitution, unlike the English Constitution, unlike a lot of Roman law, and like some of the ancient codes, this is written down. Now, the Israel, the Israel, ancient Israel, did not have a written code, though they had. Uh, the Torah and they had the the tablets, but they didn't have a, a, a written code. They had Leviticus. They didn't have. I guess that is a legal code. I'll leave it for you guys to decide. Larry, Arn, is it significant that they wrote it down, and does that become part of the American DNA as a result of the Mayflower Compact?
2: Yeah, both. That's right. That the that the law is written, and that uh, uh, it's short and simple. It means it belongs to everybody. Then see. Uh, You know, Madison says uh, at the time of the writing of the Constitution, if the laws become so voluminous and changeable that you don't know what they say, then even if they're made by the right process, that is not the rule of law. And so the Mayfair Compact is agreed to by everybody in the community, and then it can be referred to by everybody in the community readily. In fact, you can pretty much carry it in your memory. And that's, you know, that's why, you know, like, uh, I'm an anti-rule person. Uh, When I came here, we had 130 pages of student rules. Now we have 17, not 17 pages, we have 17 rules. And every year we look at them to see if we can get rid of one. Because if we've got just a few, we can remember them, and then they belong to everybody. And that that is the the, the spirit that is added to Western civilization, is the idea that we are all equal in the eyes of God, and we may not be governed except by our consent.
0: You know, would that that be remembered by every homeowner's association, the most despotic organ of the land that exists (laughs) all across the country, and they burden us with Uh, A thousand covenants, none of which are known to whomever signs those deals when they sign up for the Homeowners Association. But this is short, Dr. Rainey. People knew what they were getting into, but but they didn't know when they left England. They decided before they landed.
1: That's correct. Uh, that's right. And they, but they did know. Obviously, um, they had to, to kind of uh, think on their feet, act on their feet, uh, and given uh, the situation with regard to um, you know basically landing somewhere they hadn't anticipated landing, uh, they had to um, uh, they had to uh, make do. And uh, and uh, under the circumstances, they obviously did a um, uh, fabulous job. But yes, you know brevity is a soul of wit. Uh, but also uh, in, in cases of um, of the law uh, for. For clarity, uh, it uh, it's most efficacious, and I, I like the point Dr. Arn made about um, the fact that these were uh, were uh, meant for all to be to be uh, uh, aware of. Uh, they were to be recorded for posterity; people could refer back to them, uh, so that there was very little, um, uh, perhaps, opportunity for for abuse in the hands of of designing individuals, particularly in the future. And if you recall, the laws of Virginia, which we uh, talked about in the last segment, um, the laws of Virginia were read every week in church, right? The minister was required uh, under one of the laws to read the statutes uh, every week so that it was publicized for all And that's a hallmark, of course, of of the rule of law, right? Uh, And I remember from
0: the Patrick O'Brien novels in the British Navy uh, at Sunday service, there was always read a text, a portion of the rules governing the conduct of the sailors, always read. Let me ask you just briefly about the Puritans, though, because we have a cartoon of them in our heads that we all got in second grade when we were pilgrims or settlers or Native Americans bringing turkeys in and having a feast. What was Puritanism all about, Doctor Rainey?
1: Well, uh, boy, uh, trying to distill it down here, uh, I, I would say, uh, first of all, it was, of course, yes, it was about attempting to, um, you know, to purify the Church of England. At first, when that failed, uh, their goal was to basically to worship God in what they felt was the appropriate way. In other words, stripping away all of the um, uh, the artifices of man, uh, getting down to how the primitive church uh, worshipped. Uh, trying to emulate that. If you look at the example in Acts 2, for example, of the, uh, the way that early believers came, came together. Uh, that's what they were t- attempting to do, uh, and and to not add any sort of man-made uh, innovations to uh, the worship of the Almighty. Uh, but then also, too, uh, in the case of, of establishing these colonies, whether it was Plymouth or later Massachusetts Bay, 10, 10 years later, uh, the overarching goal was to try to establish a safe haven where, in fact, yes, they could worship freely, They were free to worship God as they felt he ought to be worshipped, not as anyone simply desired of their own accord. Uh, And that became the hallmark then of the Puritan colonies, worshipping God in the proper way. And yes, that didn't leave a lot of room for dissent. If you believe that you established the proper way to worship God, uh, you didn't tolerate um, Quakers uh, or or Anabaptists or others that you believe were uh, off the reservation and were were basically uh, engaged in uh, in, uh, either heretical or um, in... uh, uh, on biblical principles.
0: In the next segment, we'll talk about how that squares with the consent of the governed properly understood. Don't go anywhere. The Hilldale dialogue wraps up after this. Welcome back America to you at week two of our new series on the Hilldale dialogue on where did freedom in America come from? What was it understood to be last week? The laws of Virginia this week, the Mayflower compact Dr. David Rainey is with us as is Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hilldale college, Dr. Arne. Uh, you just heard David Rainey say, uh, the Puritans had the way, and they insisted on the way. How does that comport with the consent of the governed properly understood if you change your mind about the right way to ra- you know, worship God in the Mayflower Compact?
2: Well, that's, that's what had to be worked out. That's what they didn't have clear in their minds, right? And America provided the, the place where freedom of religion was worked out. And, and the point then is, a church... It's not the same thing as a government. I mentioned Hillsdale College earlier. It is not a government. It has 4,500 competitors, and everybody in it is a volunteer, and it advertises what it is in advance, right? And then it has to be the way it is in our judgment because we're to cooperate, right? We have to work together. The word college means partnership. We should agree about the terms of the partnership. That's not what government is like. What government is like is you're born here, and unless you do the dramatic thing of immigrating, leaving, going out, then you're living under the law, and the law has to accommodate our liberty. And so they figured that out. They figured out that they couldn't build polities, that is, political communities, enforcing religious practice, even in a small setting, without nothing but dissent and trouble and so they can and that that didn't mean by the way that they relaxed their devotion to god one of the causes of the american revolution was a great awakening right huge increase in the fervor of religion tied however to the idea that we don't pass laws telling people how to pray and so that see that that was a perfection in the understanding of human government in the christian era and the christianity presents us with a puzzle, right? Because the Jews have a polity. They have judges and structures and laws and enforcement, right? And, and it's everybody's God, but that's the first time that happened. But there's a structure and laws for the Jews. Well, Christianity is more radical even than that, because in Christianity, you're, it's your immortal soul your ultimate and complete and eternal happiness is dependent upon a relationship with Jesus Christ, who, however, says, my kingdom is not of this world. And that means there are going to be kingdoms, and they're going to have the power of law, which is a mighty power, but the law must be limited. It must permit people to practice Christianity. And, and, that's, and so this freedom of religion idea is implicit in those arrangements, by coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ. And it's a different kind of thing than has been known before. And it took a long time to work it out. And the final working of it out happened on this continent in the colonial period.
0: So Dr. Rainey, the the Mayflower Compact begins an organization. How does it fare over the decades?
1: Well, I think uh, it uh, it, it fared fairly well, but uh, in the end, the settlers realized that the Mayflower Compact was basically a, um, a, a beginning, not an end, not an end as in goal, but as, as in um, a final point, uh, because the document itself um, makes it very clear that they expect there to be uh, in the future um, what they call equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices, which uh, uh, from time to time would be uh, created for, quote, the general good of the colony. To which we promise all due submission and obedience, and so really, like um, like um, good constitutions, it created a an enlightened framework uh, that the colonists could ultimately build upon. Yes, establishing uh, key, unchanging, fundamental. First principles, uh, but first principles upon which one could build as uh, circumstances and exigencies required. Not, again, uh, permission or, or leave to change those fundamental principles, but uh, leave to, to build upon them to fulfill them.
0: So, Dr. Arn to, to conclude, because we will next convene in the new year, uh, by 1620, we've got the laws of Virginia, we've got the Mayflower Compact, and the revolution begins in the 1660s. How In the 1760s. How important are the next 140 years to understanding the American character? One minute. Uh,
2: speaking politically, uh, they built the most representative and complete system of free government in human history all over the colonies. And that experience laid the ground for the American Revolution and the governments created by it. And one must remember that the decisive phase of this learning about how to govern ourselves as free people comes between 1776 and 1787 because the first constitution they wrote during the Revolutionary War, the Articles of the Confederation, did not work. And they had to figure out how to fix them, and they did, and that's how we got the Constitution of the United States.
0: The innovations of free people are how we got here today. And those innovations began in the laws of Virginia we discussed last week in the Mayflower Compact this week. And when we return in 2021, we'll continue the journey because you just got to know. Because if you don't know what you've got, you'll lose it. Dr. Larry Oren, thank you so much. Professor, thank you so much, David Rainey. We will talk to you in 2021, America. I'll be back on Monday with the next Hugh Hewitt Show.